Well, sounds good. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! It's the Stinking Paws podcast. Scott here, as usual. I'm joined by two mutinous dogs this morning, Anthony and Stephen. Good morning. Hello, how's it going? <laughs> Stephen, you're Hello, there. Hello. Oh, um, the, the episode that very nearly wasn't, I think we're going to describe this as, this is attempt number two to record. It feels like attempt number 22. Yeah, mm. <laughs> not dissimilar to, to the production of the film. It's a long so drawn out process. Yeah, <laughs> long drawn out process today. <laughs> uh, fingers crossed, everything's working. We've just had technical issues. People trying to break their way through to Stephen's flat from next door when we tried recording a couple of Actually, days ago. Yeah. They're trying to steal his breadfruit. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope that's not a euphemism. No. <laughs> Stephen's breadfruit is legendary in York, ladies and gentlemen. Now, as you may or may not know, Stephen is my co-host on a little thing we do called the Real Britannia podcast, which is all about British movies. And today's movie could quite easily fall into that wheelhouse, mate. It could, but um, we, we decided to jump ship. We did. Um, well, the the um, metaphors are going to be fly thick and fast today, aren't they? It's, it's oh, going to just... <laughs> um... And yes, so we're bringing this to the um, the, the stinking paws audience mm. um, to to give them um, a taste of what the discussions um, can be um, on the Real Britannia, especially when we have a particular third um, third wheel, third sail, third, third, sail, third with sail. Us. There we go. This is going to be good today. Very I can tell. And it's Anthony, the host of Glass Onion, on on John Lennon, who has been a guest. On Stinking Paws previously, haven't you, mate? But also Real Britannia a few times. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Yeah, Four so... Five. Oh, it's um, your choice today as well. So, the main reason I think you chose it is... A, it's one of your favourite movies. B, it stars mm. Brando, I believe. Is your favourite actor? Is, is, am I right in saying that? Yeah, he's probably the... probably the Along with John Lennon, obviously, who's the subject of my podcast. Probably the cultural... Uh, I don't know, I use the word hero a little bit lightly, but uh, you know, cultural, mm. yeah, cultural figure that I find absolutely fascinating. And um, yeah, I hate, hate to beat the same drum, but this is one of, another one of those childhood films <laughs> uh, that it's very hard to have an objective view about it because it's so sort of entrenched. You know, yeah. my sisters and my parents, we as a family, we used to watch this just over and over again. And 
I'm not even sure if we thought it was a great film then, but you know, is it strange how things do that? Yeah, I think me and Stephen have had the conversation before, where mm. there's films that are generally perceived by people to be classics and are worthy of rewatching, and you know you can understand why people go back to them again and again. But then everybody has got one, two, possibly three movies that are just outside of that little Venn diagram that mm. you will watch again and again because it will click with you memory-wise, Stephen. Isn't that right? I think mine, for some reason, is probably one of the worst musicals ever made, which is Paint Your Wagon. <laughs> yeah, there certainly is, you know, these touchstones from uh, particularly childhood or, or, you know, your early experiences in life where they they take you back and a lot of what we do on the Real Britannia is, is films that aren't objectively good films, but films that we enjoy, particularly the, the, the cliched, you know, Rainy Bank Holiday films. <laughs> How many times um, have we said that on the, on the show, the, the Rainy Bank Holiday yeah, movie? You know, cliche wouldn't be a cliche <laughs> if it wasn't true. And we, we have have those go-tos that you want to go, you know, go and watch when, if you can't decide what else to watch or you just fancy revisiting, or there are some films that are even ones that, you know, when you're not actually feeling not very well, you just stick on because it's yeah. it's almost like comfort food to just definitely um, watch. That's it. So, so you know, there, there are those films that might not be objectively um, great and and are open to criticism from less sort of kindly eyes or ones that are, are less um, bought into it. You know, it's, it's like a family dog, you know, that might be scruffy and one-eyed and and you know leaks <laughs> a bit on the carpet and that kind of stuff. But you still, got, still yeah, love it and very... replace it for anything else, you know. Yeah, I suppose you've got an unconvincing British accent, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> now, the other, Some I think people the other have told thing... me I have, yeah. So. <laughs> um, I think the other thing is the seafaring thing. And, uh, Jaws is another one of my obsessive films. Objectively considered a really good film, but. There's something about the sea and the ocean that fascinates me as well. So that's oh, another okay. reason. Lots of it all ties together to make the ultimate movie for you. Basically, it's got Brando. It's yeah. got it's got sea seawater. <laughs> that's yeah. it. We all have bad the, British accents. Uh, yeah. Bad British accents. I mean, I mean, we we just used to, you know, I don't know if you did the same, you guys, but we had a limited number of films on VHS. We just watched them to death. Yeah. We watched them as a family. I think that's another big thing. Yeah, well, I, that people well, don't I do. That, it yeah, I had that with my my household because um, yeah. we were limited. But I think Scott was a bit different because of his <laughs> um, his family having access to all the latest films. Um, you know, coming through the door. Um, for a different reason we- so there was uh, always new films to watch I think in, in Scott's household that was the thing classic movies weren't really watched because we had access to um, things that weren't even released at the time you know because of that mm. that window between America releasing a movie and, and us could be up to a year sometimes couldn't it do you remember that yeah yeah, yeah. You know, we're talking early 80s. I remember E.T. took six to eight months or something to come over, but we had a copy pretty much immediately, you know. The, well, I the, think we, the other thing, I mean, we, we've laughed. Um, is there a name for those, those terrible early VHS? Is it Top Loader? Is that what you call them? Yeah, yeah Top Loader, yeah. yeah. We had a Top you know, Loader. You, you stick them in and then you have to wait. It feels like you're waiting half an hour. But no one would bother anymore for the, for the thing to very, very slowly go into the machine thing and start playing. Is, oh, yes. If the spring went, you used to have to put something weighty on top of it Brick. to keep the top, top down, yeah. <laughs> but there's something, there's something about that that gives you, I don't know, it makes you appreciate it a bit more. A bit like vinyl, it. isn't it? You know what I mean? Yeah, a bit like yeah, putting a classic album It's the same on. as if you go and put, put, the, put the video in 
and find out that the previous person hasn't rewound it. So you have to, you yeah. have to sit there for, for two minutes while it rewinds, and that builds the anticipation the as well. The longest two minutes of your life when you're about 12 years old, isn't it? Waiting well, for the video to rewind. A bit like a ZX Spectrum trying to load a game. Yeah. Yeah. From a tip. Well, also, yeah. we have a bit of a family joke. That my, my mum would occasionally accidentally record episodes of Neighbours or Coronation Street in the middle of a classic film. <laughs> <laughs> See, we Break all had our own. Slightly. We had our own blank tapes, you know, their names on it, you know. But yeah, you would. You'd sneak over and nick your brother's one and say, "Now it's going to tape over that." Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we had um, we had um, a series of blank VHSs that have been recorded onto, and they all had from the little stickers that you got with the things that you had oh, numbers yeah. in there, so you yeah. could put on the front of them on the spines what number tape it was mm. and then we had a, a little book that was same size as like a, a pocket diary that had the, what was on the actual tapes in there on a different page for each number um, it written on and then crossed out and then written on or rubbed out in pencil yeah. or whatever so yes it was all catalogued in my, my father was a wow. bit more um, of that mind as well with lists I think which is where I got it from Great so day, yes so. it had to be recorded yeah I know we're sort of drifting onto like 80s video habits here but do you remember those plastic cases that people would have that made them look like expensive books? <laughs> you, you could, you could yes. disguise them on your shelf so it looked like part of this extensive library that you got, but really they were cheap plastic like video cases that had like that's, lever that's effect. That's what me and you need to do now as a background behind us when we're on Zoom calls in this oh. current climate. We need to make it look like we've got an expensive library, but actually we've, it's full of... Videos. Dodgy VHSs, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, I remember all that. And, and this is not a typical, you know, 80s generation movie. This isn't, you know, this no, isn't no. a John Hughes movie or, you know, an Arnold Schwarzenegger or anything like that. But as you say, it's it's personal to you, Anthony, which is why you brought it mm. to the table. And, and that's what we like, because then... We're going to inject a bit of passion into this, hopefully, or one of one of the three of us is going to inject a bit of passion into this movie, <laughs> and and it'll be great to hear why, because everybody, as we say, has their own thoughts, their own particular comfort movies. I mean, Paul, my co-host on this show, my regular co-host, his bizarre one that he always turns to is I, Robot, starring Will Smith. Mm. Now, how obscure mm. is that? You know, for me, it might be it's the, the King Kong remake, for some reason. If it, like you said, if you're ever stuck... Which one, though? I like the 1976 one, actually. I like yeah. all that versions. That another tangent. Yeah. <laughs> Anything to do with giant monkeys, apparently. People take the piss out of me. Or talking monkeys, because I love the Planet of the Apes series, and I love every single version of King Kong that's ever been made. Um... <laughs> <laughs> we well, know that ape at the beginning of Yes, and Clyde, yes. <laughs> you know that ape at the beginning of 2001? Uh, I, I think you've interviewed him, haven't you? Oh, yeah. I wasn't going to mention it, but... <laughs> Daniel Richter. See, the, yeah, the conversation always turns back to people in monkey suits on this film. It used to, anyway. <laughs> well, I always work it to the Beatles, but I'll try not to. No, Are there any Beatles connections in this? We're talking 1962. Uh, oh, let's, well, let's find out. Came out. Yeah, yeah let, <laughs> let's find out. I'll tell you what. Some of these sailors must have had a hard day's night. Oh, here we well, go. They were He's so off. poor, they used to eat breadfruit you know, back in Liverpool. <laughs> <laughs> Because Liverpool's a port, so, you know, it was coming in regularly. <laughs> I'm sure on the ship there was plenty of Beatles, so... Yeah, well. yeah Actually, I just found a connection. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Tahitian extra. I was going to mention this later, but they, one of the production problems is that the Tahitian extras used to eat beetle nuts. Uh, oh, well done. Well done. So, they, so their teeth were black. <laughs> and, uh, so they had to fly in. They flew in 5,000 temporary dentri- dentures from the USA. Oh! <gasps> 
but but the extras you put them on and they were so fascinated by it that they they just go off they had mirrors as well on the yeah. island yeah they'd go off and just admire themselves for hours and run off with teeth <laughs> yeah <laughs> there's a lot of silly stories and a lot of fascinating trivia associated with this movie as i found out after watching it I'll tell you what we'll do. Let's find the trailer or we'll find some dialogue. We'll find some of that interesting accent that Marlon Brando has got throughout this movie, perhaps. We'll be back mm. after this. It's Mutiny on the Bounty, 1962. Trailer! 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 December 23rd, 1787, His Majesty's ship Bounty sailed from England bound for the South Seas. En route, there began a fantastic series of historical events as men, driven to desperation, plunged into the unknown. A series of events that culminated in the most famous mutiny in history. The dramatic story of that mutiny has, for more than a century, excited the imagination of men, women, and children the world over. From initial conception to completion, Mutiny on the Bounty has been an unprecedented and exciting adventure in the history of picture-making. The Bounty herself, built in historic shipyards in Lunenburg, Nova Scotia. First ship ever to be built from the keel up, especially for a motion picture. Then, across the world, a truly global project. The actual locales, the islands of Tahiti and Pitcairn. Tahiti. For generations, the dream island of the Western world. A land of easy-going, fun-loving people. A land that has always represented escape from civilization. A land where there is no time, no tomorrow, only today. Now Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer crystallizes the lure of adventure that beckons from beyond the horizon in one of the most extraordinary motion pictures ever made. Like all great motion pictures, Mutiny on the Bounty is a story of people. You're going too lightly, Quintal. A story of provocative and colorful characters brought to life by unforgettable star personalities. Marlon Brando is Fletcher Christian, an officer and a gentleman, yet a man among men. Watch it! service, I have never met an officer who inflicted punishment upon men with such incredible relish. Trevor Howard is the infamous Captain Bly, relentless and cruel. Mr. Christian! Richard Harris portrays the reckless John Mills. The men are armed, Mr. Christian! And there is Tarita, a luring daughter of an exotic land. Mm, Fletcher Christian is, is my name. Is my name. <laughs> no, no, no. Fletcher. No, no. Fletcher. It is a matter of supernatural indifference to me whether you contaminate the natives or the natives contaminate you. I have but one concern. Our mission. Let any one of you provoke an incident which endangers it, and I shall cause that man to curse his mother for giving him birth. 
You remarkable pig. You can thank whatever pig god you pray to, but you haven't quite turned me into a murderer. Mutiny on the Bounty thrills with moments that will live forever in your memory. Mutiny on the Bounty, released in the UK the 19th of November 1962. Directed by Lewis Milestone and Carol Reed, which we will be talking about here. Starring, of course, Marlon Brando, Trevor Howard, Richard Harris, Hugh Griffith, Richard Hyden, Tarita, Percy Herbert, Duncan Lamont, Gordon Jackson. It could have been a real Britannia movie, but it's not. It's a stinking paws movie. It's Anthony's choice. Anthony, could you give us the synopsis, please, mate? Absolutely, yeah. In 1787, British ship Bounty leaves Portsmouth to bring a cargo of breadfruit from Tahiti. But the savage onboard conditions imposed by Captain Bly trigger a mutiny led by officer Fletcher Christian. Um, it's Bly's first command. It's soon apparent that he is happy to hand out severe punishments for the most minor infraction. The welfare of his men is also not of primary concern to him. All this not only puts him in conflict with the seaman, but with his first lieutenant, Fletcher Christian. Kind of mixture of the two. Ah, oh, that's fine. <laughs> that's that summed it up. I mean, it's it's quite a familiar story to people of our generation. Mm. Yeah, I, I would say it's probably not. So it's not something that's taught in schools today, is it? I don't think. Yeah, no, I don't think so. I don't think it was considered a major event for a long time. It's one of those things that probably through, I guess, the books that came out before these films. But obviously, it's an amazing. I guess we'll talk about the real story later, but it's mm. an amazing story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's you not know. only a you know the, the story of the mutiny; it's the survival story and yeah. how misrepresented and misunderstood Captain Bly is in a lot of these movies as well. Yeah, that's I right. That, I think that the you know the the fame of the story was initially you know straight away when it happened, it was absolutely to do with Bly from the way that he survived. Um, with mm. you know the seamanship and and etc. Yeah. And um, he was actually you know almost a hero figure. Then it went into obscurity and and only came back when the triptych of um, novels were written you know earlier in the 20th century, which then developed into the, the you know the films that we um, know, which this is a, a, a remake of. Mm. So absolutely, I, I think for there was hundred years or more where it was it was basically an obscurity and and now the mutiny and the bounty more has you know people have heard of the mutiny and bounty but knowing any details about it i think it is more you know from the films if they do know the films but otherwise they've got no real idea about what what it was all about anyway yes. yeah <laughs> how it is yeah. it's, it's it's been lost in that it's just a touchstone reference rather than the understanding as revealed recently by the president of the united states donald trump has made a reference to it and completely turning around the actual implications of, of mutiny in the bounty and right. um, not realizing he was positioning himself as being the the, the villain of the piece really right. oh, really what did he say the then point. what did he say uh, then did he refer himself to it, fletcher christian it was, or something it, it was it, no it was it was he was saying about the the mutiny in the bounty and, and make, making reference to the um the governors of various states the democratic governors who were uh, rebelling against the um, the attempt to 
uh, reduce any kind of lockdown and, and any kind of fight against the coronavirus, their joint action to try and resist him, he was, he was um, described, he described that as like a mutiny on the bounty and not realising that they needed their captain and, and all this kind of stuff. And <laughs> uh, position himself as blind, but not realising that in the public consciousness of those that do know of the story, as far as the films go, um, that he was very much the villain of the piece was was Blythe. So um, the actual cultural reference point for Mutiny in the Bounty does seem to have have been lost on some people. Well, can just yeah. say just say off the bat that that for people who want to know the real story, definitely the most realistic is the third version of the story. Isn't yes, it? the, the, the yeah. Bounty from nineteen. Well, is it the third version? Because there's five oh, different yeah. of this, isn't right, there? Right. I mean, everybody remembers the the Charles Lawton. Clark Gable, they remember this, and they remember the Andy Hopkins, Mel Gibson. But wasn't there an Errol Flynn version and another as well? There was two, two of us, yeah. yeah. Um, right. I think they were both before before the Clark Gable one. Before I think. the first one, yeah. Um, well, yeah. Right, okay. I think one of them was very short because of filmmaker at the time. It was all short films, and mm. um, I think these are the, the the three that people are talking about. Yeah. The ones yeah. that are, we'll, we'll, um, we'll refer to these based as the upon three, the books, and then attempts at remakes of the previous ones that were based on the books sort yeah. of thing rather than those yeah. originals. But, yeah, I mean, the books themselves aren't necessarily um, such to be taken as has been the true story. It's a, an, an account. It's a fictionalised account, isn't it? So, yeah. but, well, for the, um, for the sake of this podcast, we'll, we'll just refer to the big three, I think, rather yeah. than the two that, you know, we're not that aware of or are less seen, lesser seen. So, obviously, yes, 1962... It's a, re- it's a rehash, it's a re-adaptation. I mean, how familiar are we with the three versions? Let's, let's turn to Anthony first, because I know this is your favourite version, but then knowing you, you go and you seek out everything that, you know, you devour all information about any movie that you know, grabs you with a passion. And I know that you, you have seen the Anthony Hopkins one several times because you like that as well, I'm aware. Mm. But what about the early one? You know, the 30s one with Clark Gable. I don't know it so well, yeah. no. Um, I'm not the world's biggest Clark Gable fan, you know. I'm I'm open to to that being changed, but um, I would say, yeah, this version is the one that's sort of closest to my heart. But I did actually years ago, me and a couple of friends, we watched all three, and we decided the best combination was Brando's Christian, mm. perhaps taking it a bit more seriously than he did this time. Yeah. And uh, but definitely Anthony Hopkins as Bly, I thought is spectacular, mm-hmm. and Mel Gibson was all right as well. So I'm very familiar with the. This one we're talking about today in the 1984 version, definitely. First one, tell me about the first one, because I'm not so familiar with it. I think it's probably my favourite of the three. Right. Uh, but then that all goes back to my love of classic Hollywood, and I think it's the version I saw first. It is. Thinking about it, I think, do you know what? I saw this in a very bizarre order. I think I saw that first. Then I saw the 80s one. Then I saw this version. That makes a difference as well, though, doesn't it? It does, and they've all Love got their the own movie. merits. Um, they've all got something, you know, remarkable about them. They all tell the story in a slightly different way. The, yes. You know, mainly influenced by budget, a lot of it as well. You know, the way, yeah. we could talk about a potential future, you know, adaptation of the novel and how that would look in this age of CGI and, and you know, the young Hollywood actors and stuff like that. But mm. this version I've only ever seen three times, two or three times. And to be honest, it's only been very recently. My first watch was only a couple of years ago mm, of this one. Stephen, what about yourself? You, your history with the three? I think, I, I think I've seen them uh, in order, I think. All right, okay. Um, okay. My, 
recollection is, I think, um, the definitely the most recent one, the 1980s one, uh, with Hopkins and uh, Gibson. I don't think I, I saw that until just a few years ago, to be perfectly honest. Mm. Um, whereas the, the other two I know I have seen a long time ago, my recollection is that um, I, I saw the 1930s one first. So, I mean, as, as Anthony says, that kind of does have a, a bearing upon how you regard the films as well, if you've, um, which ones you've seen first and, and such. Yeah. But, you know, I completely agree that the, there's a, there was both a budgetary and actual technical improvement gradually as the films um, were, were made to allow them to do more and, and be more realistic. But there was also a creeping um, attempt to try and be more realistic about the characters and to some extent mm. be more true to the story, um, mm-hmm. which is why you, you know you've, you get the more emphasis on certain characters as it progresses, that there's um, characters that are actually quite intrinsic and, and important parts of the actual real story that, that mm. aren't in the first one. And then there's some that are added for, the, for this version that we're reviewing now, but still, mm-hmm. you know, there's some that are missing that are therefore included in the... 1980s one yeah but and the different emphasis they also take with regards to the the reasons for why there is a mutiny as well there's a a, a sort of some extent a bit of a reassessment even though even though it's the same to some extent um through them well it's not quite that it does change over time but um definitely there's a, a an attempt to read do something different with each one there is there is one unfortunate kind of whopper in the 1984 film, which is that they have Bly wanted to go back around the horn. Yes. Which is total bullshit. And I mean, I think it's a bit unfortunate that they they went for this realism. They could have found some other reason why they would mutiny, but the idea that Captain Bly would want to go back around the horn, I don't know, to punish them, to yeah, you know, mm-hmm. I think the, I think one of the versions, perhaps the one we're talking about today, I've lost track a little bit, as mm. Bly going a different route because he wants to circumnavigate the globe to emulate Magellan. I, th- I can't it's, remember which film that is. It's, yeah, I think it's this one that is it this one? Yeah, set yeah. out at the beginning that that's, you know, he makes a failed yeah. attempt to go around the horn um, and that then wastes time but also, um, you know, causes people to die and it, that's seen as being his yeah. own personal ambition to be, you know, a cert, you know, a, a circumnavigator of the of the globe, which doesn't tie in with, and we will get onto this um, later on. It doesn't right, tie right, into yeah. the actual um, facts of the of of the, the matter um, and and realism. But um, yeah, I think that you know this one has you know has that, and the the third one included that. Whereas in mo- in most of the instances, the third one was a bit more was true, truer to facts, um, so it was a yeah. shame they did, shame they did sort of spoil it a bit with that. I agree, what you're saying. Yeah, but they really, um, I don't know, they just really captured something. And Mel Gibson's pretty good as well. The only disappointing, the romance with the the king's daughter becomes, I think in that podcast uh, recommended that history by Hollywood, they said it was like love story, but I think it was a bit more like the Blue Lagoon. It was a bit like the Blue film. Lagoon. <laughs> just becomes a slightly ridiculous. Thing. Other than that, I, mean, I thought the I thought the eight four film, the old film, the other the inconsistency I was going to mention with that is that in the real story, um, the HMS Pandora was the ship that was sent to Tahiti to to basically try and round up the mutineers, and in the old film, 
quite conveniently, Captain Bly captains that as that well. That's right. <laughs> so he reunites <laughs> with the mutineers in Tahiti, which didn't quite yeah. happen. But, uh, yeah. It's quite funny, you know, I mean, uh, artistic license. Liberties are taken with all versions. Absolutely. And as we've said many times, you know, in 1935, they wouldn't have been expecting people to have VHS recorders and people, the internet and all that kind of thing. You know, it wasn't done for that reason. It was done. You, you went to the movies to be entertained. That's right. Exactly. mate. And, exactly. and yes, who, who cares if Charles Lawton jumped back on a boat and, you know, immediately went chasing back after him. That's, that's, yeah. what, that's what was expected. As, as you guys are aware, I, I do another podcast called Rainbow Valley. And one of the episodes I did was on the making of Cleopatra, mm. which also came out this year, I believe, wasn't it? It's around about this sort of time. It was, yeah. yeah I mean, it came out the next year, I think. I think, yeah, but the but, production on it was years and years in advance, you know. As well. yeah, it started no, in about I, 1948, <laughs> I think. I think that the, the, what you, you may be getting to, it might be preempting you and, mm-hmm. and stepping on your toes, but nope. um, on, one of the things is that I think the, the two thing, two films, this uh, and Cleopatra, were linked by the fact that it was big budget, historical, um, epic, telling and it was there was a lot of stories floating around about the fact that the the difficulty of getting it shot and the demands of the the stars who were being privy donorish and, and and delaying things and causing problems on sets and that's the link between the, the two which is, you covered yeah. obviously in in your wonderful show thank you of the rainbow valley mm. and and will we be um cover less well um here <laughs> You've got to remember, right, we're talking 1962, right? So from the mid-50s where television had reared its ugly head and, you know, was a real major force in competing against the movie going public, movie makers had to come up with something spectacular. So you get widescreen, you get stereo sound, cinemascope, all of this came in. And from about 1959, where it really hits the peak with, say, Ben-Hur, you know, everything after that tried to emulate the success of Ben-Hur if they were making a big Hollywood production, an epic. Everything had to be three hours plus. It had to be in Cinemascope. It had to have these exotic locations. And in a lot of cases, they fell foul of their own ambition. This particular movie is no exception with technical technical woes, casting issues... Casting relationships, There's, there are some interesting stories and behind-the-scenes stuff going on throughout this movie, mate, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, I'd recommend anyone, obviously, to, to search this out for themselves, mm. but uh, where should we start? Marlon Brando, I guess. <sighs> yeah, but this is probably the main point of, you know, you ch- main reason for you choosing the movie. So. Mm. Well, one of the things that was very interesting is that uh, I first watched this film when I was, like, 10 or 11. As I said, we used to watch it as a family. Mm. I'd never actually seen any other Brando films. So I didn't know he was American oh, right. <laughs> to begin with. Then my dad put me right and uh, showed me The Godfather and everything else. And I, but it was so funny that it's it's so strange that even at that age, I think we all felt that Brando was taking the piss out of the film. <laughs> well, taking the f- piss out of us. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Even at that young age, I just felt that like, I, I just had this sense that he wasn't trying to do a good accent. He was just <laughs> trying to do this ridiculous. <laughs> and I think the line that we always... You know, in this version of the film, the guy starts drinking seawater. Yes. And and Brando, Christian gives him fresh water. Bly kicks the ladle away. And then Brando gives Bly a sort of backhand slap. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> well, the, the line we always used to laugh at was, um, 
Williams has been drinking seawater, sir. That's <laughs> 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 just how ridiculous. Uh, it, it, but, uh, it still hit home with me that I've only seen this a couple of times, two, three, four times possibly at the... And the very first line, which I cannot remember, but the, the second Brando opens his mouth, it takes you out of the movie. You, it, yeah, that's it, what I mean. It's a kind of a comedy. I think we always regarded this as a sort of unintentional comedy in a funny way. You know, <laughs> we took it as that. Do you think he was just given instructions on the script to say that, okay, Brando is this upper class officer, blah, blah, I blah, mean, and, and he's misinterpreted it somehow? I think Marlon Brando, if I can just go deep for a second, I think he was <laughs> mostly motivated by anger because I've read loads <laughs> right, about okay, him. Yeah. And I think this was just his way of saying, uh, can we swear or not? Saying just yes, fuck off. Yep. Fuck off. I'm going to hijack this because I'm Marlon Brando <laughs> and I'm an angry guy. And I, I think he just did it to annoy them, honestly. Wow, okay. um, that that podcast, History by Hollywood, did this brilliant description of Brando when he appears as a cross between a leprechaun and a superhero. <laughs> yeah, when he turns up in the... Because yeah. he's got the cape and, and he's carrying a cane. And it's, just, oh, it's brilliant. I love it. It's actually a funny... funny. There's a couple of parallels with Apocalypse Now. Uh, one of them being Marlon Brando, obviously, but also the fact they got the production got caught in the rainy season. Oh, right. And it went, it went on and on and on. But Brando... That's what I mean. I, I think he was just trying to give the the establishment as hard a time as possible because i mean his fee apparently was five hundred thousand dollars plus ten percent of the gross and i think that was one of the first times that an actor got you know a, a cut of the of the gross but he also got five thousand a day for every day that the production run over schedule oh this and is we, the, the parallels between about, this and elizabeth taylor are frightening actually you, yeah you're saying this, but yeah, guys cool. we're talking about five thousand dollars a day in 1962 <laughs> well we could God, buy a house I mean, how much that. is that yeah how much is that now i know a hundred thousand dollars a day it's, it's and no wonder he managed to buy the, the tahiti islands <laughs> there you go but of course he the other parallel with apocalypse now is that he would ad lib and he would stall you know partly to piss everyone off partly for the money it's exactly what he did to Francis Ford Coppola in Apocalypse Now, and it's fascinating. Yeah, you know, yeah. there are other things. I mean, he, he didn't he didn't learn the lines properly, and you, you must have heard of his famous line learning thing where he'd stick the lines on like dummy cards to the furniture, yes. or he'd even ask a, an actor if he could stick the lines on his forehead. Yeah. So if you watch Brando, <laughs> often often you'll see his his eyes just go up because the lines on the forehead of the guy he's talking. And, uh, oh, I don't know. It's incredible because he, he wasn't. Hmm the biggest star in Hollywood at the time, but he was fairly big, wasn't he? I mean, we're, we're talking on the waterfront was 10 years before this, wasn't it? 54, 55? 54, yeah. 54, yeah. You know, we had Guys and Dolls and a few other things in between. And and am I right in saying that this is the movie that not necessarily killed his career, but led to that 10-year sort of fallow period before The Godfather? Yeah, it is is commonly seen that way as being the one that sort of made him poisonous to work with. Not not just because of the fact that this film maybe financially didn't um, do what um, they were hoping it was going to do, especially with him taking a a cut of it, but also his behaviour made it that the people who who, decided director-wise and and, and star-wise decided that they'd rather just not work with him. So it it really wasn't, wasn't until... The Godfather, where it, there was some kind of uh, rehabilitation, mm. I think. Yeah, I mean, box office poison is what they always say, isn't it? Yeah. And he became 
And I, I think I think absolutely this was this was you know this alienated him massively. And uh, you know, I'm, sure, a... I'm sure he will have decided that was everybody else being wrong rather than him. Though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Off, yeah. <laughs> that type, isn't he? From what he... Uh, it's a funny, it's a funny mixture because he was quite deep as well, you know, and he he got involved in civil rights. I think he did actually want to change the world. He's one of those people, but he couldn't deal with his own life, and he, you know, two alcoholic parents, and uh, yeah, you probably know the story, but mm. you know, very very complex person, but just endlessly fascinating and the thing is i mean uh, those films as you said between 62 and 72 they're not great but there's one called burn which uh came out i think in spanish which i'd recommend and that's where he actually premiered this uh posh accent oh right yeah (laughs) (laughs) and he considered it one of his best films but again it would just i mean for for whatever reason it just he didn't really have a box office hit and he made some pretty awful films in that time yeah, I think wasn't there the Western one eyed jacks and things like that? Or was that later? I can't remember. But that was before Bounty. That wasn't too bad. I mean, have you seen The Chase, for example? Oh, have long time that? ago. Long time ago. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a very interesting one with a with a sort of troubled production, and you can kind of see <laughs> there's a there's a there's a running theme going through. There, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that wasn't that wasn't necessarily his fault. I think that was you know the script got messed around with and. Um, Brando's this sheriff. It's it's got a good cast. Robert Redford, Jane Fonda, the various yes. other people. I yeah, know, I know the one. But yeah. you, when you watch it, it's like a lot of his films. It just seems like a big missed opportunity. Like this flashes, this flashes of the old Brando. You know, because he built such a reputation based on basically four films. Really, I mean, well, let's think: The Men, Viva Zapata, Streetcar, On the Waterfront. You know, just those four films had given him such a reputation that. Mm. They they let him get away with a lot, but in the end they just wouldn't because Hollywood know, was costing, was, Hollywood the was changing money. the studio system. This was the beginning of the end for the studio system. This was sort of highlighted by you know the, the making of Cleopatra that nearly led to the downfall of Fox at that point. Right. You know, and it's not until about five six years later when we start getting the new bucks in town. You know, you start getting people like your Spielbergs and your Coppolas and all these guys that start making Bonnie and Clyde and, and you know, the wild one, uh, sorry, the wild bunch and um, Easy Rider, you know, the Easy Rider Raging Bull generation, as you like to refer to it, Anthony, you know, that yeah. that whole lot creep in and the studio system just collapses almost. And this is the beginning of the end. And the 60s, people sort of, sort of say, oh, you know, the, the golden age of Hollywood was over all these big productions. But when you look at some of the massive epics that came out in the 60s, it was a second golden age almost because, as I say, you know, we were competing with, with television. And, you know, Lawrence of Arabia was this year. Um, even the musicals were big and they were bold and they were wide. You know, Sound of Music a couple of years after this, Oliver, West Side Story, they were huge productions. They were made at the expense of some of the more lesser movies the more creative movies the more probably more interesting movies if truth be told in Mm. favor of these big overblown blockbusters that when you look into it quite a few of them turned around and bit the hollywood studios on the arse a trouble production um to say the least to say the least i mean two directors which again similarities with cleopatra again originally now Stephen, it was carol reed who, yes. famous British director, left for, I've got it here, it says an undisclosed ailment. <laughs> Gallstones, I've got it here. <laughs> Gallstones in inverted commas. Yeah. Do we read he between the lines? more time with his family. Yeah, do we, do we read 
read between the lines here, guys. You know, <laughs> trouble production is 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 screaming out. All you know here. See, I'd I have think, thought, you know, when you hear oh. trouble production and, and you know that they built the bounty, they built that ship, didn't they, from scratch? Mm. You think, oh, okay, well, that will be the start of it. You know, the, the the boat took two years longer to make than they planned. It didn't. That was the only thing that sort of went to plan was the construction of the bounty <laughs> itself, wasn't it, I think? That was <laughs> that was commissioned, well, built in Nova Scotia, and boom, it was ready, you know. Well, there are a couple of other things, actually. I mean, when they got to Tahiti, the sand, rather than being white sand, was black powdered lava. Yes. So they had to get tons of white sand flown in. I mean, <laughs> I'd be fascinated to, to, to see the production. I actually got a student, because I'm an English teacher, who actually works on films. And I would, I can't imagine how stressful this kind of thing is when you're talking about these amounts of money. And you've got to get, you know, what was I said earlier? Five. 5,000 temporary dentures flown in from America. Incredible, isn't it? What's that John Wayne movie where they flew the sand in and it was radioactive? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, um, and all the, all the cast developed cancer. Yeah, I can't. Uh, oh, I can't remember. It was something. To, it was it was a, like a desert western, wasn't it, or something? Stephen, yeah, yeah. possibly. And, and basically, what they did, Anthony, they they hmm. got this sand flown in, but they flew it in. I might be wrong here, but Stephen sort of aware of the story i can tell wasn't it from the nuclear testing grounds in nevada or somewhere yeah that was back in the time where they you know they, they basically had the you know some swimming goggles that were made out of um sunglasses and <laughs> um, was enough to protect you from looking at a, a, a mushroom cloud um oh going God. off on the horizon yeah. um you know and the fact that it blew your hair back was just you know, <laughs> that just needed, meant you needed to recome yeah. not that you were suddenly going to go away and, and develop some awful mutations yeah. and cancer and stuff uh, which subsequently happened. It did, um, didn't it? Yeah, just hide behind a brick wall was was dead duck, <laughs> duck and hope for the best. But yeah, yeah. The, I mean, there's other things as well. I mean, Brando was also gaining weight. I mean, obviously we know he's famously became very obese when he's older. Yeah, and he apparently went through. I'm going by this uh, Brando biography that seems to be a fairly accurate. He went through 52 pairs of trousers. <laughs> what, just in this movie. How can that be true? Surely not. <laughs> yeah. Let's say maybe not 52, but uh, a what, few. What, because well, he needed different sizes? Because, he, because they kept growing, yeah, because he, <laughs> he did spend, you know, it, it, there's, there's tales of him spending, you know, a, a maximum of actual two hours being available for shooting each day. Oh, and wow. uh, the rest of the time he was basically enjoying himself, which was uh, laying around and, and eating and sleeping. So um, that would, you know, gain the weight. Lockdown. Yeah. We're all going through it at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> of course, so, he, didn't want to, he didn't want to get off the island. That's the thing. That that's the another reason he was messing around with the script, ad libbing, because he wanted to stay there longer and uh, get paid for it. He's excellent. Quite canny. Oh, of course he is. Was he first choice for the role? Because Trevor Howard wasn't. It was Peter Finch was first choice, wasn't that's it? That's right. Uh, I'm not sure. I do know that Brando was offered Lawrence of Arabia, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> yeah but I believe he, he. I believe he was um, from the beginning. Though the he was mentioned as a possible. Yeah. Um, but whether that was their first choice or not, but certainly he was. He was in the frame from the beginning, even mm. if he wasn't the, the primary the choice. Person, yeah. So I mean, yeah, all this production stuff. It wasn't all Brando's fault, but I think he did drive everyone mad. I mean, I've heard. Trevor Howard talked about it, Richard Harris, just just making life unbearable for people, the other actors. Mm. <laughs> I'm wondering if there was this bit of a division as well between the British crew and the cast mainly 
and it, it is mainly British crew, isn't it? When you look at it, the cast list here is is mainly British mm-hmm. famous faces, and then it's you know this this uppity, obstinate American, mm-hmm. young, you know, young star is is throwing a spanner in the works. Where I can imagine that again, Stephen will probably back me up on this one as well. Back in Britain, where everything's run by the unions, and you had to stop for tea breaks, <laughs> and and. And that, that was true, though, wasn't it? The British studio system—they—they they knocked it on the head dead on five o'clock, didn't they? And Hollywood productions were yeah. really frustrated by mm. things like. That. So you uh, can imagine um, that you know the British, like Trevor Howard, that was used to that sort of system, to have somebody disrupt it must have been really frustrating. Yeah, and the, the, you know the the actors had um, developed more pull um, as far as making sure that there wasn't. The repercussions on them from demands of of the the director or or studios or whatever that they weren't being put out and messed around, and then to have one of their own, as it were, as another actor being the one that was the cause of this, particularly you know with the the, the directors um, having more more sympathy towards them as well, I think that um, it, it did put that division in there probably. I mean, it was you've got to look at the cash, like you've said, and realise that. You know, ninety-five percent of of the cast were were either British or or Tahitians, yeah. and um, you know, there's this small compliment, and particularly as you know, leading that, being uh, Marlon Brando, who was really the, the the focal point of the rest of them um, suffering, really due to mm. um, his antics. The parallels again with um, some of his other films mm. later on. Apocalypse Now and stuff was where you know and end up delivering having to do scenes and do do lines and stuff whereby he was shooting them on the on his own and the the camera was on him and the actual other person wasn't in shot because they weren't they weren't willing to actually um, perform with him. Um, <laughs> but towards, you know, towards the end, really. As you guys know, sometimes difficult circumstances create, you know great art and I mean the apocalypse now basically he didn't and he was supposed to be in shape because this is obviously a, Kurtz was an ex special forces in the story instead of he in, turns in shadows really, he turns up really fat <laughs> yeah. with a shaved head but they turned him into a kind of Buddha figure I mean it was yeah. genius yeah. you know and the, the way it was lit well, that's it. Created, he, he was in know, the shadows, not, wasn't he? That's the thing. They they, they hid him. The you know, but that, that is that classic scene when he first appears out of the dark. Yeah, um, and the bald head. Yeah, and that's what people remember. You know, the sweating and, uh, bald head. That that creativity. You know, it's the same as with, with Jaws, where you know the the animatronic didn't that's work properly, so they decided to not show it as much, and the the yeah. that um, limited amount of screen time actually made made it more intriguing and and um, more full of impact, um, really. But with regards to to this, I'm sure that that you know there is no no loss. Um, of love between um, Brando and, and some of the other actors. I mean, you, there are stories which I'm sure Anthony's got more details of than I have. Of not so much Trevor Howard, who I think would probably have been quite British stiff upper lip and just sort of quietly raised inside his own head about it, or maybe in a diary rather than actually react to to Brando. Mm-hmm. Um, even though you could see that there was possibly antagonism that was maybe useful for for the acting experience but certainly i think with richard harris there was there was more and i mean you know there are stories of where there was character confrontation between richard harris and um, malon brando and and richard harris basically just taking the piss out of brando in order to try and get him to to actually 
do the fight scene more authentically because he was you know so limp-wristed in the way he slapped him or, or whatever and um Brando just not not getting it that he was <laughs> he was taking the piss out of him really so I think there was antagonism <laughs> abound wherever Brando went really apart from maybe to the Tahitians who might have been the only people he was he got he was, he was decent to <laughs> I think there was a strange admiration going on maybe not at the time but I think years later um, when you hear Richard Harris talk about it, he doesn't really sound angry. He, yeah. I think there's a, enough magic in Brando that they could kind of forgive him almost. I don't know. Maybe I'm biased. <laughs> Talking of um, Mr. Brando's love for Tahiti and all things Tahitian, <laughs> this is the most fascinating backstory. You know, one of those great bits of Hollywood movie trivia. Now, mm. he was married, wasn't he, at the time? to Mavita Castaneda. Mavita. Yeah, who yes. appeared in the 1935 version. She was she was a bit older than him, was she? Eight years older than him at I the time. So, yeah. yeah. Mm. And in the end, he runs off with Tarita. He's the, the, the leading Tahitian female lead in this movie, mm. who is many years his junior. Uh, she right. was 18 years younger. There we go. She was only 20 at the time. But isn't that weird, yeah, that the link there, that he's married... The, the female lead from 1935 and then leaves her for the female lead of the And I'm sure if he'd been anywhere near Tahiti in 1984, he would have tried to pull of the girl who played uh, Mel Gibson's. Of course yeah. he would have done. Yeah, probably, because <laughs> right. you know, just keeps, keeps um, trading him in for a newer model, obviously. He liked getting married and having children, did Marlon, yeah. He didn't it, it, seem to worry that it complicated his life, oh, basically. You read the backstory of like oh, yeah, not only the marriages but the, the the affairs that he had as well. Yeah. Um, Rita Marino and Katie Gerardo from High Noon as well. You know all of these people. He became obsessed with them um, mm. and pursued them to a certain way. You know he had a brief a fling with um, Marilyn Monroe, didn't he? At one yeah, point, he did, yeah, you know. yeah. Um, we focused a lot here on the backstory, the trivia, the turmoil as a movie is itself. What do we think? Is, mm. is it a good-looking movie? Is it a great movie? I th- I quite enjoy it as a as a. Can spectacle. you go first? Because I'm 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 too subjective. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll go we'll go, go we'll go to Stephen as, as as other guest here today. I mean, forgetting the other two versions that we've been talking about and, and the backstory and that, mate. What's this like as a movie for you? It's it's a beautifully shot epic. Putting aside the the questionable characterizations and, and the even more questionable um, <laughs> facts of the actual story. There are some some great performances in it. I mean, you know, Trevor Howard probably um, not fully able to be recognized due to the, the, the sort of more strong performances and the, and the characters having more to play with with regards to Brando and Harris. Um, certainly does a, a, as much as he can within the sort of cardboard put out villain of the piece that he's given to work with. It's, it, it's a, I don't think he's given a rounded character to work with. I think mm. he is very much one-dimensional. Um, yeah. But I think he still teases what he can out of it just by um, being an incredible actor that, that he is. You know, Brando, I do feel miscast, to be honest. I don't uh, I don't think uh, he was the right person for the, for the job on this. Although, you know, if you were going to have the character being played intentionally, as as I seem to portray him, which is at odds with um, the truth, like we say, then even putting aside the the actual accent, the portraying the character as a, as a victim, I suppose, um, and that allowed it to be acceptable that there was some of the the scenery chewing um, that really went on a, a bit as this torn soul 
So it's taking that aspect where it's trying to put across the, the different psychologies of the of the main characters, including Richard Harris, who you know pretty much a, a scheming, angry young man from could be taken directly from a, a number of kitchen dramas. Really, <laughs> yeah. I, I think that the you know the, the trying to get more into the psychology of the of the characters um, as opposed to the earlier films um, is is one of the things that this film does better than the other the other two that we might reference that they're trying to to do that i don't necessarily say that they're they're accurate in it but certainly it's there's an attempt there rather than the earlier film being simply that it was a sadistic um captain and people rebelled against him or the the third film that it was um, a mixture of people and christian being in love with with a woman and the others just not wanting to go back to their shitty life in England. Yeah, this gets more, you know, attempts to portray a bit more the, the, the psychology of, of the lead characters and that, that mm-hmm. um, turmoil and, and conflict. I mean, so, I mean, you're putting a, a, aside the actual facts and if you're not, not treating this as being a, a portrayal of events, that it's actually a, a fiction um then it's easier to to watch it and i think in, enjoy it really it is it's incredibly long but um for for me if you're able to put aside that then you you know that the there are some some great scenes in it mm. some great dialogue quite tense in certain points i mean it mm. does unfortunately default a bit too much to whenever there's a, a lull in the story that's when the weather starts kicking up um, you know, so that you know, there's that side of things, but I think that that um, I can understand why um, Anthony can see this has been um, something that he took to, especially with the whole heroic sea, mm. and then the exoticism of the um, of the, the Polynesian islands and, and such like that. That is something that that sat in his psyche and, and caused him to go back as as, as a family. I could also understand other people who, who don't take to it at all, to be honest, because they feel it's too long and um, it, it's historically inaccurate and that the characterization is um, a bit too um, as characters rather than actually um, having the, the realism. Is it but, the... Sorry to interrupt, mate, because I, hmm. I want to get this in before I forget. Is this the seafaring version of Zulu? But based on what you have just told me there, you know the yeah. characters that are completely wrong, the trouble production, mm. the the you know the 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 story has been not tweaked but massively you know exaggerated or you know focused mm. on the wrong things. Yeah, it's, I wish that said era. This beginning, we could have just said this is Zulu at sea. Yeah, and we could have just left it at a one minute review. <laughs> um. But it's also from what you said, you know, that Anthony as. as had this movie as part of his life for the last 40 years almost with regard to like our real britannia review Stephen, this is a typical rainy bank holiday sunday movie yeah. isn't it you know it's, it's one of those isn't it that mm. was always on it, like it's Zulu, to fill like the, the schedule Great... as much as possible with the minimum amount of um things listed in the radio times exactly. um, <laughs> and um you know plenty of ad breaks you know it's it's particularly since it's portraying something outside the reality of, of what is the rain hitting your your living room window so you you've been taken on the high seas and to to an exotic island yeah um yeah. and then there's adventure and peril and you know that kind of kind of thing going on so absolutely this just fits squarely within a, a, a rainy bank holiday yeah. um film from but it's from not boring either I mean, 
Did you get bored at any point? I didn't. I didn't, but a lot of the critics were sort of... Their main complaint was some of the padding. And one particular one, I wrote this one down. It's from Esquire magazine. MGM spent some 20 million on the film. They could have saved most of it and had a better picture by sticking to the Bly Christian conflict and omitting the spectacular clutter, as they call it. But I don't think it was cluttered. I think it was... Knowing that it's a three-hour-plus movie, right, guys, we know what these films are like. You get that whole overture. Did you did you watch a version that had the overture and the on-tract and, the, and it split in the middle with the intermission and all that lot, guys? Mm. Yeah, yeah, the prologue and the epilogue, yeah, isn't that, it? The, we we'll found the about, gardener on the island. Yeah, we'll talk about those as well, because they yeah, weren't included, were they? So you know that up to that first, you're waiting for the intermission, and always in these movies, the first half, it isn't actually a half, it's slightly longer. The first part of the movie is always sort of geared up to nearly two hours to give you about an hour, an hour and a quarter for the second half of the movie. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, oh. if you look at you know where they take the break in a lot of the movies, that first... That first bit is about three quarters, well, not three, two thirds, say, of the movie. So you know that for the first, you know, couple of hours of this, it's going to be set on board the ship. You know they're not going to hit Tahiti until that second half almost. Mm. And what I think hit home for me in that first half was that they did develop the tensions. It was a slow burn. And mm. it was little minor well, not minor, but little minor parts of the story that you think, okay, the tension's building, the tension's building. Look at, the, for example, the whipping scene. We're talking 1962. You would not have got blood in the 1935 version of anybody being whipped. Yeah, yeah. It's um, gruesome as well, isn't it? That's what I mean. It was, that was really effective, that the fact that, yep, yeah, let's go for this. It's 1962. We can make this quite, quite hard-hitting. Even the bit where he cast one of his officers up into the mast... Overnight. Oh, yeah, it's chilling, yeah. And well done. It was actually chilling. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> he, I didn't even mean that. <laughs> and he comes down, and, and you know, he can't. <laughs> boom, boom. Yeah, and he can't move. And it's like, keep keep your, you know, keep yourself together, man. You're in front Come of Come on. Yeah, yeah, keep yourself together, yeah, yeah. man. Keep your, and yeah. it was that that really sort of hit home for me. I mean, as a movie, we know you love this. Anthony, personal thoughts aside, it is a it is a great movie, isn't it? I mean, it's not necessary just because it's a personal movie to yourself. You like it because of the fact that it's a, a fine looking film. It's a great spectacle, mm. and it, it's great entertainment. And I can imagine going to the cinema and just absolutely loving this. Yeah, but um, I mean, there's there's comedy as well. I mean, Brand, Brando's accent for me is basically almost a comedic device, whether it's intentional <laughs> or not. But you know, the bit with Trevor Howard. I mean, Trevor Howard doing the dance in Tahiti. Excellent. Uh, do you remember? Excellent. I mean, how fantastic is yeah. that? I mean, I think Brando, Brando does inject something into it. You know, it's comedy at the beginning, but I think he, I think one thing he always portrays well is um, angst and depression and things like that, because that's who he was. You know, he was seeing a psychiatrist when he was making streetcar, for God's sake, <laughs> when he wasn't even thirty. You know, he yeah. knew about that, and he brought a lot of that. And I mean, the last scene. Sorry to cut straight to the last scene, mm. but I mean it's very moving, you know, when he when he died, and he he was lying on ice, wasn't he, to get that kind of chill, to get the chill of death. So to speak. that wasn't going to be part of the movie, was it? I think there was oh, a lot of there was a lot of rewrites and a lot of debate going backwards and forwards between the studio and Lewis Milestone that had taken over the directing, and, and right. they didn't want it to end on his death scene. That wasn't originally the ending. I can't remember what the original ending was going to be. 
but that ending is, is pretty effective, really, isn't it? I mean, it's very, I mean, yeah, and I think he, I think he really shows the dignity. I mean, I think Fletcher Christian in reality was quite had quite a lot of integrity, mm. apparent according to you know accounts of the crewmen, and I think Brando really got that out. You know, because in again the '84 version, they turn on Christian, don't they? As well, yes. They, they almost do the same as they did to Bly. They start getting annoyed with Christian, and and there's they, they think about mutinying against him. <laughs> well, there's <laughs> hints of that. Twist. There's hints of that in here where he's, you know, yeah. down in Bly's cabin, all aloof, and you know, you could see that developing. But we're 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 well into a three-hour movie at this point. And you had to make the decision: do we do we take the story in that direction, or do we focus on the love story? Oh yes, it's 1962. It's an epic. It's cost us 20 million. We need we need to focus on the love story a bit as well. You know that. I don't feel it is. I don't. And the criticisms of fluff in in there. I do. You know. I don't feel that that is um, that is justified really, because I think it's, it makes for a better story. Yes. Um, you could go into the psychological drama of, of you know deeper, and if it was in different hands, but would it have justified the epic scale and the scenery shoots and all this kind of stuff, or would it have just been a two-man player based in a yeah. in a in a cabin? The the fluff, as it's called, was was made it a more entertaining film, even if it was less realistic. Certainly, um, is needed to be there, and also to to make more. More of the the scene setting for for the events, even if it wasn't the accurate, it certainly was was needed. And um, the poetic license, um, in order to do that, is just yeah. accepted that that's what. Obviously, I mean, this sits in the same realm as um, the likes of, you know, Pearl Harbor and Braveheart and, yeah. and such, where the the just designed to just um, tell the story rather than actually uh, tell. Uh, what actually happened so I think that the love story bit was it was intrinsically necessary for yeah. for this to be something that would be potentially sold because you've got to you've got to like Scott said you've got to remember that people were viewing this by going to the cinema they weren't gonna exactly. get get a DVD and watch on some streaming service they were gonna go as a date to the cinema yes with you know uh, a boy and a girl usually um, got to keep her in indoors times. happy mate and, yeah that's right and yeah. so you, yeah you, so you've got to have it and particularly since the you know the what was perceived to appeal to females at the time was was that it, it needed a love story or needed some singing and dancing in it and that mm. so was necessary to to inject in really um, otherwise you just you know you make it as you know, a heavy drama like a war film that you know like excludes that audience um, which is not what they were wanting to do it was meant to be an, an MGM grand epic that was meant to be all things to all people really yeah. I think the script is I can't remember offhand but we used to laugh at some of the lines and I think there's a bit where does he say to you remarkable pig Something I hope like you that. pray to whatever pig god you pray to. Or something <laughs> yeah. really silly. Like. And there are other things. I mean, I think it, it sacrificed that because the script, I mean, again, the thing I was listening to today, they, they talked about 30 rewrites. That might be a bit of an exaggeration, but, you know. Oh, I, I'm not surprised. And I bet a lot yeah. of it was written on the fly as well. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I could imagine that a lot of it was was written to accommodate you know Brando's availability, or you know his willingness to work on the day, or whatever. You know, but yeah, it, was a, it was a bit busy some days, lying on, sitting on the beach, gazing at the sunset, eating you know. breadfruit. 
<laughs> yeah. Because um, there was an outbreak. Uh, <laughs> of course, the actors on the film were also reenacting the mutineers and that they got very friendly with the Tahitians, as we know. And there was yeah, an outbreak of gonorrhea, perhaps not surprisingly. Across the entire island. Babies <laughs> born as well during the production. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. it's, it's one of those I, cases that the, the backstory is as fascinating as the movie because, you yeah. know, it's, it's a sweeping historical epic. And as we've just said, you know, the, there's dozens of examples of this sort of movie from around that sort of 10-year period from sort of like 56 up to sort of 66, 67, you know, that it is all widescreen and big spectacular movies. And it's it's a great little period in Hollywood history, I think, you know, that do we see the likes of it anymore? And I know, Stephen, you just mentioned, say, Pearl Harbor or... Or Braveheart. We were getting these sort of epics for a while. I mean, have they re- have they been replaced by bloody three-hour Marvel movies now? Is that what we're looking at? Probably, yeah. I think so. Yeah, I mean, you're not getting historical um, ones of, of this time frame, really. I mean, I, th- I think that this kind of thing has actually moved more to being, um, you know, a multi-part series on, on Netflix yeah. or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got the, the Catherine the Great on, and all these kind of things yeah. that are done. And to be perfectly honest... The, the fact that this is a film that's based upon what was a trilogy of books, and although you can debate the the actual content of the books as far as the veracity of the facts, if they actually went back and revisited to make sure it was a bit more factual, they could probably quite easily turn this into quite a gritty, multi-part, no, more well, multi-series, to be honest. They could probably do, you know... Oh, yeah, um, imagine that. You know, mm. three the series, story, three yeah. series of, of, of sort of... Because um, you've got the you know, the rather overlooked and, and um, difficult to tell, I suppose, story of the actual Captain Blythe making it back to civilization. And there's yeah. more to it than shown in the film, um, yeah. which is a more interesting story. And I think that that... That could, you know, I think if there was wasn't another attempt to do um, beauty and the bounty as 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 a thing, then I think that it, it should perhaps be done in that context rather than trying to cram it all into a film. Because I, I think that that's now with the um, the desire to have a bit more truth in the retelling of of history, then I think that um, it would be better served by having that full full amount of time to do it in a multi-part series and certainly you could have have that done quite easily segment it up in into the actual story of them getting to the island being the first series and then what happens in the months on the island has been the next bit and then the the aftermath being the the next series after that really i think they don't think there has been much in this context as far as historical epics being shown in the film and, and length of film now it, it, it is Marvel films and occasional long dramas about old cowboys, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've had a couple that have... Well, no, I wouldn't even say it's come close. I was going to say Dunkirk, but I can't think of anything in recent years that we could compare this to. Anything immediately spring to mind, you know, very recently? I don't think there is, is there? I've lost track badly with films yeah. the last sort of five to ten years, you know. I'm <laughs> going backwards to the old ones. but uh, I can't remember me thinking, looking down the cinema's listings and thinking, oh, that looks like a great, good old-fashioned epic. It's never going to be quite the same because, of course, they're going to use CGI, you know, inevitably. But so I like never that. Quite I, get the yeah, same thing. no, but I like the idea that somehow 
you know, some of the technical limitations that we had previously could mm. now be overcome a bit more. So you get more of an idea of 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 what actually happened. So, mm. for example, when you see some of these war films now, whereas before it used to be stock footage of Spitfires having a dogfight, or you know there would be just one of the last flying Spitfires flying. What was it? Uh, Hope and Glory, Stephen. You know we saw actual yeah. real Spitfires flying over, but in this we could see proper dogfights or whatever. If it's a war film today from the cockpit, and we could see the actual you know the real damage of things that are done, and even you know again in say it's a film set in wartime and it's a British street you'd have one old car because that was all they could find, you know, sitting yeah. on the pavement. But with CGI, you can have cars and buses and things going past. So I'd like the idea that historical epics can now recreate a bit more faithfully what has gone on without those I'm on limitations. The, I'm on the fence about that because as long as it doesn't get too smooth, you know. I mean, a, a good example actually is Titanic. I mean... I'm sure you've reviewed A Night to Remember. I guess you have. We did on Real Britannia. Real Britannia. Yeah, I mean, the, I think Night to Remember, I'd much prefer to, to Cameron's Titanic. But if you watch Night to Remember carefully, it actually looks more like there's about 400 people on the ship, you know, yeah. scrabbling to get on the lifeboats rather than 2,000. So obviously Titanic was better in that regard. But yeah, exactly. leaving that's aside what, the love like, story, yeah. they lost something as well, you know. Yeah, but that's what I like. I like the fact that you get more of a sense of wow, there were 1,500 people on board that ship. Yeah. Um, Which is, is right, you can do, you can you can portray it more. And I mean, they the, had the, the budget and the resources to Absolutely. with the third one of these uh, in the, the um, trilogy that we're talking about with Mel Gibson and, and that you've got the uh, Anthony Hopkins arriving at the Admiralty and, and you've, you've got the wide shot showing there have been plenty of horses and carriages and the, mm. the they've obviously done something to me to to mask out um some of the skyline and stuff that would have revealed um more modern buildings yes. and stuff in the 80s yeah. and and I so mean, you can have that done the only thing that i noticed there was one of the the statue in the foreground that had its its weather beaten face just that was completely featureless like a, a doctor uh-huh. who um, statue and and I was thinking well, it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been um, featureless at the time because yeah true so but they would have they would have absolutely added that on um, with CGI to, to yeah. just that tweak and I think Scott's got a, a good point there where you could feasibly do a a, um, a passable job that would make it more believable with um, the CGI and, and mm. especially now that CGI has moved into a different realm I feel where this when it's when it's done right, it's seamless. You don't notice it's CGI. Yeah, Whereas, go back a couple of years, and CGI was always that CGI. Titanic was the early days, wasn't it? That yeah. cameras like, right, I've got this technology. I'm going to make the movie I always wanted to make. Yeah, if, yeah. if you even made that now, I like that version of Titanic. I'm sorry, but I do like it. But if that now, technically, it would look even more spectacular because it does look like a cartoon ship and some of the. Uh, you know the early shots. Yeah, of the but you've got to be really careful then, because then you're making it into something glorious. You know, whereas Titanic was just a horrible story at the end of the day. Yeah. It was just, a, just an enormously horrible yeah. tragedy. But, but no, no, I, t- I totally get it. You know, mm. the technology's there. But you know, um, actually, uh, <laughs> I just thought of a Beatles reference. Yeah, go on. We've been waiting all morning. Yeah, go on. <laughs> uh, it just came to me. No, uh, just to give you an example. The, the song Day Tripper. Um, there's a point where the right speaker cuts out. For yeah. like a second on yeah. the last verse. 
due to the primitive technology. And of course, now with all these Beatles remixes, they fix that. And a lot of fans are kind of annoyed because they're so used to Daydripper. Of course. Listening yeah. to it and it cutting out. So all I'm saying is, you know, I think there's a balance to be struck. You know, you shouldn't, as long as it's not just computer geeks working on these stories. Yeah. yeah no, you I need a purist where, working on it as well. You know? Yeah, I think that's where you, you've got a difference between doing something brand new um, using the technology and resources available rather than going back and revisiting and digitally remastering and, and putting CGI onto, say, this version of um, Mutant in the Bounty. If they went back and they they did some digital effects to make it that Brando's accent was actually English um, <laughs> or, or stuff like that, then I think that would, you know, absolutely, that would be sacrilege and you shouldn't do something like that. So there's some there's bizarre a, version of auto tuning, you mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, just you know, kind of, kind of dubbing in uh, in a yeah. way, but making it just voice treat it. Yeah, yeah, just having. Oh, they, oh, no, they could do because <laughs> when when they reinstated that missing scene from Spartacus, the snails and the oysters scene, um, they oh, had yeah, they yeah. had the visuals for that, but not the soundtrack. Tony Curtis was still alive, so they got Tony Curtis to dub over the voice, if I remember rightly. But they got oh, Anthony Hopkins right. to do um, Lawrence Olivier. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because he was a sort of a protege of Olivier, yeah, wasn't he? Yeah, they, they got him to... I'm sure it was it was, it was Hopkins that did that. I think you're right, yeah. 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 So, Amazing. referring well, back... Olivier yeah. and Hopkins both had scenes together in, in the Bounty, the, the 80s. Oh, film. of course they did, yeah, yeah. He was Lord oh, of the Admiralty, wasn't he? Yeah. Bloody hell, I forgot all about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they did indeed. There you go. He snuck Sir Larry in there. That, this, <laughs> that was the era when, you know, you, you put him in a film and you, you know you've got a movie of worth. That's what they were trying to do with dear old Larry. You know, it was like, yeah, we'll get Lawrence Olivier or Ralph Richardson, the grand old men of British theatre, get them in. Well, he had a kind of renaissance, didn't he? Because when they were filming Marathon Man in 76, they mm-hmm. didn't think Olivier was going to survive much longer. Yeah. He ended up. What did he do? Boys from Brazil. Boys from Brazil. Fantastic other... movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A few turns. And as we said, we've said well. previously about you know that he took a different turn in his career around about the time of, of Bunny Lake. He's missing where he decided yeah, to right. yeah. start stop doing what is the classics and 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 start enjoying um, himself. I think enjoying just, himself yeah. and, and applying his his classic talent to to, to things that are modern. Um, which I think was was great that he decided to take that turn because the, what we then got was a, a number of films where his oh, presence oh, elevated it massively and and, well, to be and, honest, and brought, I think that set the road as well for other people who yes. also were from the classical tradition but seeing that they could actually um, step over that mark and, and do something modern it goes on it today. selling out. I mean, what what he did with Andrew Wyke in Sleuth, I mean, and Michael Caine as well. Great Kane, film. I think, matched him, but oh, I mean, that's in my top ten Great easily. Film. Yeah, because again, he just he just gave it a hint of this horrible darkness <laughs> that mm. probably wasn't in the script. You know, yeah. that mm. whole thing about actors, you know, t- towards the twilight of their careers, just trying anything and everything, just you know, mm-hmm. to enjoy themselves, just to let loose a little. It goes on today. I mean, we, I think we spoke about this, Stephen, before. Someone like, um, and his name's completely gone. Gandalf. What's his name? Um, oh, uh, oh God! What's his name? <laughs> oh, all three of us had the blank at the same time. Yep. Here we go. One, two, three. That guy, yeah. Ian McKellen. Ian McKellen. Ian McKellen. Thank you, Ian oh, McKellen. Right. 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 
a few years ago, he decided round about the sort of time of Lord of the Rings, right? That's it. I've done. I've done Shakespeare. I've done everything. You know, I wanted. Mm. So didn't he sign up for the things like pantomime and? And he was in Coronation, Coronation Street, Street as well, oh, didn't my God, he? Really? And then you look at Patrick Stewart now doing a lot more sort of comedies and does Family Guy, uh, not Family Guy, American Dad, American Dad, yeah. and, and it's just like yeah, I've, I've proved I can act. I've done my bit now, and they're just taking the gig that they're having the most fun with. Olivier done that. Trevor Howard did to a certain extent. When you look at the late 70s, the early 80s stuff, he was in things like the Sea Wolves and, you know, those Mm. old British sort of military things, you know, that he would still play um, an an older British officer, but they weren't serious British war movies as such. Mm. And Yeah, fantastic. He was Henry and Rawlinson's End, a prime example. Um, Yeah. Let's quickly go back to the last of Anthony's notes before we start <laughs> winding this up because I think we've covered most things as we usually do. We, we we have your pointers from yourself at the beginning and we sort of touch on them here, there and everywhere throughout the, throughout the conversation. Is mm. there anything you've got written down you want to just sort of finish off with or just sort of touch upon before we wind this up, mate? Uh, a couple of things. Yeah, mm. I mean, just, just to echo what Stephen said earlier about Bly. I mean, the, the main criticism of this film from a realist realism perspective is just the Bly as a sort of cartoon villain mm-hmm. you know and I mean there's there's so many things that are factually inaccurate such as you know he he didn't flog people he, he his actual record of uh, flogging people was less than the average yes and, uh, mm. he was a far more reasonable person also what this film is missing which is is one of the great parts of the 84 film is is this amazing journey they took to East Timor mm. And it was, I think, 3,600 miles. Um, uh, Christian gave him a sextant, but they had no charts. Bly was known as a great navigator by everybody. I think they had 19 men in a ship made for 10. And yeah. they had they survived 45 days on five days full rations. I mean, it's just astonishing. But it's funny. Can you imagine Trevor Howard's Bly if you saw him, like, starving and suffering? It just wouldn't work, would it? It just... I'm sure he could do it as an actor, but yeah, they they think? they they tweak this ever so slightly and hint at it. But they say, you know, the nearest island they're going to go to is Tafua or something like that. I think Probably, it is. Yeah, yeah. That's right. and he says, no, we'll avoid that, and we're going to go to the next one because you know and it's four thousand, whatever it is. We're going to, but they actually went to Tafua, and yes, is that the one they had the cannibals on the island? And, oh, and, or, again, or, an incredible or, scene. I mean, yeah, it, yes. I, the, the more I think about this, I think Anthony Hopkins is so good as Captain Bly, and you got Bernard Hill there. Yeah, uh, well, Bernard Hill, a Titanic yeah, reference as well there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, they, they um, the, that I think that was more or less true. They, the, the natives seemed friendly, and then they got more and more sort of hostile and they ended up like yeah, a couple of the mutineers got killed didn't they i think and they even tied yeah. a rope to the, the boat and they tried dragging it back to shore it's as, right. as you say if this was given the time and the production values over steve and say a 10-part mini-series or or even you know a three-series serial it's a fascinating story you could go from start to finish and this would cover a good 10-year period from start to finish i mean blind Bly went back and did the breadfruit mission as well. Yes, they sent him back to the mission and he yeah. made it to the West Indies. Yeah, and then he became governor of, was it New South Wales or somewhere in Australia? You know, he's, Yeah, he's... and there was the Rum, rum Rebellion there. Yes, he was, right. It, well, in between that, it was, there was two mutinies that happened in English parts, basically. 
this is where my research comes, up. comes yeah. in. Yeah, uh, don't claim separate. you haven't been doing any research. Se- <laughs> it's 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 stuff I've done separately for 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 other research for ah. um for when I eventually do theoretically get a, my other podcast oh, going. Oh, that one. But um, <laughs> this uh, long heralded and 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 never realised. Um, but there was there was two mutinies that happened about um seven or eight years after um this that went you know several years after Bl- after Blythe had returned. And uh, the Spithead, which is the, the, the port, the area outside Portsmouth where um, all the ships were, were moored, basically, that, that area mm. um, of, of the uh, English Channel and then the, the, the Nar um, in, in London. But the Spithead one particularly was, was relevant to this because um, they did kick up a fuss about um, their, their objections to the discipline that was being uh, exerted on them as far as um, whippings and, and stuff like that, floggings and yeah. um, rations and, and such. And one of the captains that was removed, uh, along with a, a, a vast number of others, was Bly. So that was he was the free mutinies that he's linked to was was the, the bounty um, spitted and then the rum rebellion when he was governor but he doesn't seem to have been directly implicated in spithead he just seemed to have been associated with it because of his reputation that he'd, uh, he'd carried on due yep. to the what due to the because there was a lot of um when he got back and okay he was found not guilty by the um the, the admiralty and and um in some ways actually praised but there were still those that had been the, the families, the particularly aristocratic families of those that he was trying to condemn had gone round blackening his name. So his reputation, yeah. his reputation publicly um, rather than professionally was blackened. So he got removed as part of this rebellion in Spithead several years after he'd, he'd returned from doing the breadfruit run again. Um, and then he was, you know, part of, he was the subject of a rebellion in New South Wales as a governor, like you say. But that was <laughs> on the on the the cursory glance of it is that he was, you know, he was stopping um, rum being imported, and therefore that's what caused the the rebellion. But in actual fact, what he was doing was stopping the corruption, whereby um, mm. this rum was coming in, and and the vast majority of it was was being siphoned off and sold. Um, exactly. Yeah. So privately, so he was—he kind of has suffered. His reputation has suffered on three levels of being damned for being somebody he wasn't, and um, you know it could possibly even be that the the mutiny bounty um, triple series on Netflix doesn't have to be about the <laughs> mutiny bounty. It's actually a biopic of of, of, Bly. of um, Bly because he was a self-made man um, yeah. who was oh. trying to be uh, a captain despite. Other people getting awarded captaincies just because they happened to be from an aristocratic family, but they didn't have his skills. Yeah. And he, he struggled for a long time to actually be made a captain. Even in this, he wasn't. He was captain of the ship, but he didn't have the rank of captain. That's it. Um, well, he eventually that, that reached the rank of vice admiral. So you know, eventually, yeah, eventually mm. before he died and was in the Battle of Copenhagen, amongst other things. So, you know, his abilities as a as a seafaring, you know, commander aren't in doubt. You know, it's just mm. the way that it's portrayed. That's Captain Cook chose him for, for mm. his um, second and, and I think third yeah. um, journeys because he recognised him as being a, a, you know, the best navigator to have. Fascinating story that, you know, as we say, mm. the, the three versions of the bounty, mutiny on the bounty that we sort of be di- sort of discussing today, they all take a different view. They all and, and if you were to combine all three, you still wouldn't get the full story. Yeah. Yeah. 
he was younger. I think Bly was 33 when the when the voyage, and I'm pretty sure all three actors would have been quite a bit older. Yeah, how old, all, how old was Trevor Howard? Mm. It must have been 50, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Mm. I think in all of the films, the the actors were older. I think yeah. the closest you get is Mel Gibson in the third one, but the rest of them, yeah. they were all substantially older than they actually um, should have been. Um, yeah, because I think Christian was 23 when they sailed, mm-hmm. and and Bly was 33. There you yeah. go. Yeah. Um, can I? Can I just read one thing? This is because I did make a load of notes about the real story. Just the end of it. That's all. Yeah. Uh, this is probable events because uh, we're not sure exactly what happened. But the probable events at Pitcairn saw Christian and four other mutineers murdered by Tahitian men in September 1793. The Tahitians themselves being murdered by surviving mutineers or the wives of murdered mutineers. <laughs> Christian fathered a son called Thursday October Christian. Uh, you probably know there's a chef called Glyn Christian as yes, well. Yes, they're long-distance yeah, relative, yes. Quintal and McCoy constructed a still, making liquor and drinking a lot. 1798, McCoy committed suicide. Quintal was killed by Adams and Young. Young died of asthma and Adams remained. And um, as we said earlier on the DVD, there's this prologue and epilogue where they do that kind of device where you see someone who basically tells the film as a story and then yeah. you return to them at the end and... They yeah. made it the gardener, didn't they? Richard, the guy Richard who was Hayden. in, yeah, mm. yeah, it was in sound of music. Yeah, mm. um, but, um, there were rumours going on for mm. years and years that his murder was fake, though. Christian's murder. Did you? Did yeah. you? Yeah. returned, yeah. To, to England. Yeah, mm. um, how he would have done that was difficult. I mean, the first contact that they the Pitcairns had was was quite a while later, about eighteen years later, and and that was out. You know story then was um pieced together and there was as you say there was only one survivor which i think was adams and that's right the the rest were either several tahitian women and um and the children basically and that was that was it um with regards to um survivors on the island and Mm. and we know that um about a decade ago there was uh, some very unsettling news about how um the pitcairn islands culture had, had developed yeah. Um, yeah. Which you know didn't didn't you know sort of brought back some discussions about the mutiny in the bounty, and I was surprised really that around that time that there wasn't any plan. You know, nothing came of of um, them retelling the story as well, because I would have thought that mm. the references might have provided ammunition for them to decide to to have another go at telling the story. Um, you know, sort of how the Pitcairn Islands ended up there in the first place. It's because of mutiny. So let's tell the story of the mutiny. But yeah, there, it was, a, I believe, a, a whaling ship from the United States that discovered them like 18 years later and yeah, the information yeah. had been put together. And then there was, you know, there's also the story of those that decided to go back to Tahiti and, and got picked up. And then the the commander that had, was on the Pandora, which wasn't Bly, um, <laughs> yeah. um, then basically the he was a cruel captain and some of the um, prisoners died because the ship crashed and they he refused to let them out of, of where they were locked up. So they basically drowned because they were still locked and imprisoned. Um, right, yeah. So there's, you know, there's, there is a lot more to it just uh, sort of after the, um, the actual mutiny happened that isn't portrayed in the yeah. films. And obviously it was long enough as it was without getting too much into that, which is why I think there, there is more to it if somebody decided to invest 
Listen, um, I, I in, think the three of us should get it. together and write this script. You know, this. I think, yeah, I think we, yeah, we get, I already have it. need to do the research. I already have it. <laughs> We'd have to be a bit more accurate. Do you guys, like, as as you're aware, the, the three versions that we've been talking about featured, you know, the leading Hollywood heartthrob at the time, you know, Mel Gibson, Marlon Brando, Clark Gable, right? Have you read Captain Bly's actual description of Fletcher Christian, what he actually looked like? No. <laughs> right. There's no portrait or exact drawing of what Christian looks like. There are a few drawings out there, like a representation of him. But in Bly's own words, right, he described him as five foot nine inches high, blackish or very dark complexion, hair, blackish or very dark brown, make strong, a star tattooed on his left breast and tattooed on his backside. His knees stand out a little and he may be called little bow-legged. He is subject to violent perspiration, particularly in his hand, so that he soils anything he handles. <laughs> so, what was the? <laughs> so, good luck with the casting of that one, chaps. When we actually get this stuff, instead you get a leprechaun, a <laughs> leprechaun, the superhero. Yeah. What was their um, real relationship? Because in in the the later film with Hopkins and Gibson, they're very chummy. Obviously, in the version we're talking about. The, the real like relationship it. was that they did actually know each other and had yeah, sailed yeah. each other previously, mm. and only about um, a year. Yeah, and mm. Fletcher Christian was, you know, was friends with the, the his family, and and his, right. his, had read read stories, you know, bedtime stories to his children and all sorts of things. So mm. they were um, friendly, and and you know, Bly specifically sought out um, Christian to to be on the the ship. So there was already a, a friendship there. Um, which I think is why, in the, if I remember correctly, the third, the Mel Gibson one, um, he does appeal to to him based upon yeah, the friendship and, yeah. and his his children, and his family. Yeah. Um, yeah, so but... yes, that that's another inaccuracy whereby, you know, that that relationship um, existed, whereas it was portrayed as being that they were complete strangers and at odds from the beginning, which is, yeah, again, is dramatic license, but not accurate it's more simple i suppose isn't it it's taking the simple route of yeah you know two total opposites it makes the whole story of the conflict you know more believable in that short space of time that they've got to tell the story i suppose that's it yeah anything else anybody would like to add before we wind up here chaps no that's it i mean i think it's very very entertaining i do recommend that podcast history by hollywood it's they take you through the real story of something and then take you through how Hollywood has treated it. And in this case, they go, they talk about all three films, which is how you get a three in one deal. But uh, I think it's very entertaining. Um, I think, you know, if you've got some sort of surround sound or something, it's definitely, uh, you know. Oh, watch it on a big screen TV or whatever. Yeah. yeah definitely get the full, get the full effect. Definitely get the full effect. Stephen, is it top of the three for you or is it? Sort of middling or or even the bottom. Where where would you rank this amongst the three? I think it entirely depends upon what you're wanting from the film. Um, mm-hmm. If you're wanting something that that is telling you more accurate with regards to the the history, yeah, then you need to go for the the most recent one in the mm-hmm. 80s. But if you're going for something that attempts to have a bit more of a, an epic appearance with, with the, the cinematography and um, the the scope of what it's trying to cover as well as trying to include the the, the psychodrama 
of the individuals then there's this one you need to go for and if you're just wanting to go for something that's a bit more you know a, a swashbuckling adventure mm-hmm. then you go for the first one so yeah. this one definitely has its place and i don't think it, it i don't think the um there's bits there's bits that the other ones do better than this but there's also some bits that this does better than the definitely. others so yeah, fully, um yeah. i think it has its it has its place and if that's what you're wanting from it then absolutely you seek it out and as you say a big screen to be able to take in the the full technical of, of the Tahitian mm-hmm. um islands and 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 the women that he um you know certainly uh, is is a spectacle if nothing else you will get a, a, a chuckle out of the the accent of um <laughs> Marlon Brando which is is on par with Dick Van Dyke um at least he tried and, Clark Gable and didn't. and yeah, at least he tried. Yeah, but I, I'm reminded of it uh, when I was uh, watching it again. I was reminded of of Robert Downey Jr. when he was doing Sherlock Holmes. That that yeah. British accent there as well. It was yeah. just um. Oh, what's the what's the one in Trapling, the um? Chaplin. Oh, Ocean's Ocean's oh, Eleven. Oh, Don Cheadle. Don Cheadle, um, oh, yeah. who's who's talking Cockney, but like yeah. not because you've got you know need we're needing subtitles for him never mind oh. um, anybody else so i think this is a film that i can understand where where anthony's coming from with regards to his fondness for it yeah. um it's not for everybody because of the length and because of the, the subject matter check out brian james in tango and cash as well for a really dodgy english accent oh yes <laughs> but americans tend to um tend to sound like a sort of cockney spiv from the 1950s when they do yeah <laughs> they tried to do english accents so I think I appreciated the fact that Marlon went for something else, you know, not a sort <laughs> was, of gore blimey governor. It was kind of unique. I'll give him that. It, it was unique, yeah. And, and anyway, yeah, I recognise a, a, a Cockney spiv wouldn't have worked for somebody who was meant to be um, uh, uh, an aristocrat from from yeah, uh, exactly, up, yeah. sort of yeah. Newcastle, where. Yeah, but you could have played uh, Christian as a sort of working class hero, couldn't you? As well, that would have been another well, way you could have gone with it. I was going to say, you know. despite all our criticisms, you know, he's, he's a great film at the end of the day, this movie. And I'm going to spring this on you because I haven't thought about this myself, but mm. we'd do a remake or we'd do a Netflix series or whatever, as we say. I think the series thing is a great idea. I don't yeah. think we necessarily need another film, I but, think. But bearing that in mind, right, and, and what we've said that Christian was 23 and Bly was 33, and who would we cast today? Ah, well, Stephen's the classic film jerks veteran, so uh, I think oh, we yeah, cross that was the feature of them, him, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I've sprung yeah, this on you. I haven't even in... thought about it myself, but you know, the ages were all completely wrong in all three versions that we've seen. Yeah, yeah. It would be difficult, I think, to find a 23-year-old. I don't know that would appeal to the audiences as well as you know, would a 33-year-old to today's audiences convey that authority that Captain Bly had? Do we need somebody of Anthony Hopkins or Trevor Howard standing to make this more acceptable. I think you you yeah. you're right pinpointing there that you would. The, the problem is with casting people age wise with um, with history mm. is that you've got to remember that uh, you know in a number of cases people going back into history hundreds of years um, life expectancy and and such like was mm. was shorter so people aged quicker anyway so people who in our terms now i mean you can just sit in in our own generations of things that you know what was when we were um children uh, me and scott when we were children that were pensioners yeah. um were were doddery old women whereas now <laughs> you know people who are 60 
are there people who are, who are you know still going to to gigs and and yeah, jogging yeah. and doing all yeah. sorts of things so you, you so you've got to you, you've got to yeah well done scott but um <laughs> you've got to um you've got to so you, i think you could get away with having somebody um 10 years older in both respects um, yeah. to be able to fulfill the role because they would fulfill the um the criteria of how people aged at the time i mean you know you, one of the um officers on the in true to life on the the, the boat was um a 15 year old who was you know, a young lad who was an officer yeah um, aristocratic obviously but i mean mm. that you know that you can have the movement of maybe 10 years as far as age wise to to allow people to appreciate that the uh, maturity of people being different back in those times but who you would cast is a is is a bit of a minefield because how yeah. you find some people who were have the right temperament um and uh cv as well as what what characters mm. they can put across and if you're going to put something out there that does have the the action as well as the psychodrama you're going to have to get some some people who are quite good all-round um actors rather than you know just putting um the rock in there. I was going to say the danger would be any of any of the Marvel cast. It would be Captain America <laughs> or you know. Uh, well, no, I'd say we'd need to be British people. You know, we're, 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 who's the so. guy? Who's the guy who played James Hunt in Rush? Was he Thor as well? Yeah, that's what I mean. It would be somebody from that ilk, wouldn't it? it He's would, Australian, isn't he? What's yeah, his name? He, oh God, there was Chris Evans is Captain America, and it's him, isn't it? Um, uh Oh, oh, Hemsworth, isn't it? Chris Hemsworth. That's yeah, it. yeah. You know, that would be See the danger. Like that would be the danger that would happen. We would get a muscle-bound, all-action hero. Mm. Um, but then again, we, we got it with, you know, Clark Cable and, and Mel Gibson as such, that they were, at the time, the leading heartthrob. So yeah. do we want an accurate representation? I think we do. I think we need to make it accurate if we're going to get this remade, guys. I mean, they'd be wanting to try and put They'd be wanting to put the likes of Tom Hardy in there somewhere, they wouldn't there, and, and so that would be the choice. Would be, that would be it. Would, would, Tom Hardy's Bly. Tom Hardy's Bly. Right. Yeah. 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 That, that would work better than having him as Christian. Certainly. Oh, we're all okay. Um, I've never seen Master and Commander. Is that any good? Because uh, Russell Crowe seemed to fit the bill, but I guess he's a bit old a bit now. Older isn't he? now. Isn't Was, wasn't yeah. there a link between that and the the um? The bounty in the eighties that they didn't they use some of the didn't they use the, some of the ships or whatever oh, that they that they something. featured in one film was actually reused in Master and Commander. I think that, I, don't know. I think I read that somewhere that there was there was there was a link there. But yeah, as far as recasting, um, difficult. You know, it, it's it's a bit of a minefield. But yeah. you know, you'd be, I think you'd have to pick British people. Um, to play the the British parts at least, not our British people playing the Tahitians because that's uh, obviously <laughs> daft. But um, you know, and they could do a full a full examination if they did that of of where where people's different motivations lay, and rather than just have it as a as that there was a one villain of the piece and that was Catsman Bly because yeah. you know from from my from from my view, I mean, the Tahitian king was uh, the biggest villain in all of this, really, um, <laughs> just because of the fact that, you know, he was making pronouncements about as far as when the the mutineers turned up at the island and said, you know, we want to take, um, we want to take, you know, several men with us to, to, to sail the boat. And he basically just said, yeah, I'll, I'll give you some men. 
Don't they have a choice in the matter? <laughs> you're going to send them, send them off, uh, you know, take them away from their families and send them off, and that's it. They're just on, you know. So, um, you know, maybe the the worst dictator in the entire thing was the Tahitian king. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's it, there's a there's a multitude of different aspects that could be better examined in a in with more time and and now with there being a better view of history to be able to yeah. um, not just have such a simplistic view as well yeah so um hopefully somebody from netflix is listening to this or amazon <laughs> and uh, we'll put that that out for us but there you, go. you know and give us a credit as well we've done all the, the hard work it. for you lads it's there we, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. and as long as they don't fall down that trap of when we first tried to record this episode a few days ago and, and you know technical difficulties and you know noise at steven's end of people breaking into his house and stuff um I reminded you guys of the very short-lived version of this, the musical version, starring oh, Dave, yeah. David Essex and Sunita. <laughs> this, yes. this this long-forgotten West End production. Um, and, you know, it. <laughs> if you can cast David Essex as Fletcher Christian and Sunita as the love interest, anything is possible, chaps. That's all I'll say. Well, we'll so, look forward to the to the uh, Netflix series starring Danny Dyer then. <laughs> Danny Dyer and Miley Cyrus. Yeah, I can't wait. It'll be brilliant. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's leave it at that. The three of us are going to get back together very soon at some point mm. as a Stinking Paws episode. So let's take a break. And I believe, Stephen, it's your turn to choose, mate. So see I you after so too, this, my yes. friend. Okay, let's see you after this. Will you please grant me the honor of receiving this token of my love, though we stand worlds apart? My dreams were battered and torn, but they're brave the stormy sea. Tahiti, the goal of my life, receive me home. Man, we are Tahiti.
now, preview time. When it comes to entertainment, you can't beat a good film. So let's take a look at what's coming your way. So that was Mutiny on the Bounty 1962. Fantastic. Thank you for, for bringing that to us, Anthony, mate. I really enjoyed going back to that and, and particularly enjoyed talking to you two guys this morning about that and the yeah, other versions right. and the speculation of what could be if we were to ever recast it. I guess I'd say to the listeners, maybe watch the trilogy, you know, in in order. Because then, then you, as you said earlier, you get real, three real different interpretations of it. It's the same story, but three different ways of telling it, exactly. Yeah. It's a development of how to, how to tell it as well, as I say, because of the um, technology um, and the, the sort of zeitgeist at the time of what they want to try and put into films. Yeah. I think that, that it, it is a good way to do it, to watch them in, in order. Yeah, and any new version would probably focus on some of the darker aspects of the story as well. Mm. So, well, if we make it. If we make oh, God, definitely. So, <laughs> as you two chaps are coming back, I believe it's your turn to select the episode, Stephen. So where are we going, mate? What are we going to be looking at next time the three of us are together? What's on deck we'll go... next? <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Hey! Sorry. 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 Oh, you plank. Um... <laughs> Stop. <laughs> right, where where we're going is um, we're we're going to France, so that's a bit nearer home than Tahiti, and a bit more recent uh, times as well, because it's uh, about twenty years ago. Yeah. Um, a film that you know big big impact on rejuvenating people's uh, I think um, the public's view of of foreign language films. I think so, you know people yeah. in this country are a bit reluctant. To, to engage with foreign language ones, but occasionally one comes along that, that does actually pull them in a bit, a bit more. So, um, and, and this being a, a quirky a quirky story with some comedy, but a lot of pathos in it, and definitely a, a, a very iconic use of, of colours, mm-hmm. um, the way the film the, the film does, which the director is, is, is known for. So, and it obviously brought into into my life um, uh, Audrey Tattoo, which is, or Toto, as it's, I think, pronounced. Um, so it's it's Amelie from 2001, which is a, a, a film that I'm a great fan of. So it's a bit like Anthony bringing this to the table. It's something I have a great amount of love for. So there's always a danger right. that you're going to see somebody else rip apart oh. something that you've got fondness <laughs> Mate, for. But, um, it's, it's Jean-Pierre Jeunet, who I adore. The music is absolutely fantastic in this. And it's one of those films that you can genuinely describe as a feel-good movie. This is totally inoffensive, and we'll just have to see how we go. I think I saw it at the cinema from memory. I've seen it once, but I just remember it's a, a girl trying to spread a bit of happiness That's in the it. world. Basically, I'm, I'm yeah. all for that. So, yeah. <laughs> Especially if it's with you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, hopefully, I mean, that'd be quite interesting to see how it's it, from that viewing that you had a long time ago and how it. Um, it comes across to you now, your your second watch so long after the case. I mean, I've seen it a few times subsequently, and I think um, Scott's seen it a couple of times oh, at yes, least. I yes, think yes. Um, it was it was Charlie previously on this podcast who for a long time hadn't seen it. And I think he was 
almost in a contrarian way, resistant to watch it because he everybody was saying good things about it, and then <laughs> he was watched it. And I, I was with, with bated breath when he was saying he'd watched it. Um, we were reviewing. I can't remember what we were reviewing. Something else, weren't something we? Something like the cook, the thief, this, his and, wife, and her lover, or something really dark and yeah, twisted. I think. And he, <laughs> and he said, "Oh, by the way, you mentioned at the beginning. By the way, I've, I, you know, after all your your pressuring, I've I, I've watched um, Emily and Scott went. So, what did you think of it then? And we we're all like bated <laughs> breath, and, he, and then he just basically said, "Loved it." Even the coldest hearts yeah. can be warmed up, mate. That's right. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> even the most cynical black um, heart. Um, um, yeah. So, so yeah. So it'd be interesting to hear you on that, Anthony. And also, I mean, although we've discussed it in a, in general terms, just in passing, me and Scott, we've never had a, a proper no, discussion about no, it. I don't no, think. No, so I that'd need be quite to nice. see cool. it again. Need to see it again because it's um, it's been a fair couple of years now since my previous viewing it's one that i don't like to watch too often because i don't like to spoil the magic of it so yeah excellent guys thank you so much for being there this morning even despite you know numerous attempts at doing this and technical well it wasn't really technical issues really was it it was it was outside influences of people digging up roads it was outside building. influences yeah. that were trying to make their way inside yeah yeah, yeah it was Marlon Brando from beyond the grave trying to <laughs> fuck up our production <laughs> he, he knew we were going to slag him off <laughs> but no that's no, been he really knows good. I love him so it's yeah. fine. that's been the stinking pause we'll be back the three of us hopefully very soon we've got a lot more episodes lined up with other guest presenters so take care guys see you both very soon thanks a lot see you later take care The management of this theater suggests that for the greater entertainment of your friends who have not yet seen the picture, you will not divulge to anyone the secret of the ending. Bastard arms! That infernal jamboree is worse than two cats on a fence! You dudes get lost now, you hear? Good night, ladies! Good night, sir! When you fail down, try positive thinking. That's what I told the man said, don't wear a frown, try positive thinking, laugh back your troubles instead. You've got to look on the bright side, on hope so much depends. With your confidence sinking, positive thinking helps you on the way, my friend. When things look black, try positive thinking. Every season of spring No glancing back Try positive thinking Trust what tomorrow may bring This crazy world That we live in Will keep on spinning round But with good, strong Positive thinking We'll get together And life won't let us down Shut up Oh, shut up. We enjoy it.